Our text this morning is Psalm 1. Psalm 1. It is fitting that we have a text which focuses on the supremacy and the glory of the Word of God. And then after that, we will have the joy of celebrating the sacrament of baptism. And uh, the Word always proceeds and towers over the sacrament, and the sacrament seals the Word. And so it's fitting that we're looking at this psalm, the first psalm in the Psalter, and which is really in many ways a preface to the whole book of Psalms, because Psalm 1 opens up a series of themes, the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the Word of God, the coming judgment, fundamental themes which then resonate or echo down through the whole Psalter. So we'll make three points. Three points, the blessed, the wicked, and the Lord. The blessed, the wicked, and the Lord from Psalm 1. First then, the blessed. The psalm starts with this strong, emphatic announcement. Blessed is the man, or in the NIV, blessed is the one. The person. And the word blessed here is actually in the plural for emphasis. It would be like trying to say blessednesses. The blessednesses, the manifold state of all the blessings of the man is in view. And of course to be blessed, blessing in general of course is one of these words we have to recover and like shine off all the sentimental uh, stuff that's attached to it and all the harmlessness of it. You know, we moved here from Tennessee, and in Tennessee, people regularly, almost instinctively, reflexively say, oh, well, bless her heart. Bless your heart. Which usually means something like, I think you're an idiot. (laughs) But they love to say, bless your heart. Bless your heart. And so the word ends up being degraded. It's a covenantal word. The high priest lifts his hands up and places the benediction, the shining face of God upon the people of God, that they might be genuinely happy. That they might be in God's favor. It has nothing to do with health or wealth. It entails living under the protection and the guidance of the Lord of life. And this is beatitude. And this blessedness is described first in the text negatively. Notice in verse 1 in the text. Notice the form of the text is like this. Blessed is the one who does not do A, nor does he do B, nor does he do C. Much like the Ten Commandments, The text takes the form of thou shall not. Now this is offensive to moderns who think that all religion, where it's allowed to be expressed, should be expressed in positive feel-good notions. But because of our sin, because of our corruption, blessedness is first and foremost negative. We have to say no to certain things. We have to refrain. Right? The perspective of Holy Scripture is that we are at war 
And the Apostle Peter says, therefore you must abstain from the things which wage war on your soul. Placing this negativity out front, if you well, this negative or this refusal out front is crucial. It is crucial and it cuts against the grain of modern sensibilities. What we're specifically to deny and flee from is spelled out in verse 1. The blessed man is the one or the blessed one walks not in the counsel of or in step with the wicked. If we want to be blessed, we cannot walk in the counsel of wicked. Now, the ungodly do not appear with little red horns. Right? They may be sincere and well-intentioned. They may be friends and neighbors. They may be family members or colleagues. They may be sweet-looking TV personalities. They may be adorable, really. They may have many fine qualities. And they're often quite willing to give advice. I'm always amazed at moderns who, out of one side of their mouth, confess that the, the cosmos has no meaning, no purpose. It's a random accident. Man has no divine end. And by the way, you should do this, and you shouldn't say that, and you can't be like this, and you have to do that. They're quite willing to give advice. Usually the advice has the form of, the cosmos is meaningless, now don't treat your mother that way. Now, of course the advice can be right. The advice might be wholesome, but here the text is assuming that they're giving you ungodly advice. And it says, don't walk in their counsel. It's very simple. And so there's a kind of separation here. Ethical separation. Right? It's not spatial separation. We don't have to disassociate ourselves from unbelievers or from the world. Paul says you'd have to leave the world to do that. It doesn't call for pompous self-righteousness. That's not the point either. It simply says there's ungodly counselors. Don't listen to them. If you're a young person, this is one of the most important things you can grasp in your life. These parents will be teaching these two children soon. This very point. There are ungodly, deceitful, evil counselors and counsel in the world. Don't listen to them. So the text calls for this exclusive commitment to godly counsel. This means we have to discern, we have to distinguish. Another thing moderns don't like to do. Distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. We have to discern ungodly advice and then we have to flee from it. And so again, this is for all of us, but if you're a young person, you need to ask yourself, who or what do I turn to in my distress? In my perplexity? For comfort and advice? In other words, do we look for strong, mature, spiritual counsel or do we flee to people who we know are just going to tell us what we want to hear? 
Right? We all have a tendency to do this, to place ourselves in bubbles where we're just constantly reaffirmed in what we already believe. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you listen to one voice, the Good Shepherd's voice, and therefore you seek the counsel of those who are going to conduct you to Him. So the blessed one does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The second negation is this. The blessed one does not stand, the text says, in the way that sinners take. There's a progression of evil in this first verse. First one listens to ungodly counsel. Maybe only on occasion. Maybe once in a while. And then one finds themselves walking in the path, the way of sinners. Evil Counsel leads to evil habits. It's hard to put it more simply than that. The idea that somehow we're immune to the media we consume, to what we see, to what we hear, to who we associate with it, and that somehow we move through life impervious to all these forces. You know, keeping ourselves hidden away in some secret place where it's untarnished or unstained. That's utterly naive. Do not be deceived. Evil counsel leads to evil habits. And the third negation is the blessed one does not sit in the company of mockers. Not only does evil counsel lead to evil habits, it eventually leads to a willful aligning of ourselves with wickedness. Notice finally here you have a, a settled state. There's one who sits in the seat of the scornful. He scoffs. If you listen to ungodly advice, you end up scoffing at righteousness. Which is essentially what we have a whole culture of. A culture which now scoffs at righteousness. So nobody gets into this state overnight. It comes through repeatedly listening to and heeding the wrong people. These are the negatives, the preconditions to be blessed, to be happy in the Lord, the text says. And it's more difficult, I think, in our day than it was in the psalmist's day. All he had to contend with were ungodly Israelites. We're being carpet-bombed with propaganda all day and all night. First thing to, to recognize is then this is serious business. Don't be deceived, Paul says. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. You will imitate who you hang around with. Maybe another point here that's relevant is the, the blessedness in this psalm the blessedness is not yours by nature or yours simply because you're a Christian. This blessedness is pronounced on a certain type of person. And this person is, make no mistake about it, this person's a dissenter. This is a person who knows how to say no and knows how to persist in saying no. All right, that's the negative. 
But the, the Lord never leaves us with a wholly negative agenda. So in contrast to shunning this ungodly counsel, in verse 2 we're told to delight ourselves in the law of the Lord. The blessed one does this. The law of God, which here means the Torah probably, but for us would mean the whole of Scripture. And so the law of God then is to be our positive delight. We turn away from these ungodly influences. We turn to the Word of God. David says in Psalm 19, the law of God is more to be desired than gold. Yea, he says, even much fine gold. That's a remarkable statement, is it not? And I suspect if someone came to you and said, I will, um, I will make a deposit of gold and silver and other hard assets into your retirement account. Or, if you choose, I will give you a great love and delight in Holy Scripture. You can make the choice. We would say, oh, give me the gold and I'll work on the Scripture thing later. I mean, not only does the psalmist say that the word of the Holy Scripture is better than gold, he says it's better than lots and lots of gold. He doesn't think it compares. It'd be good for us to be as obsessed with Holy Scripture as we are with our retirement accounts. It's sweeter, he says, than honey and the honeycomb. Now, Ed Weber brings me some of his honey because I'm a tea drinker. And it's really, really good honey. It's really sweet. Holy Scripture is sweeter than that. More desirable than gold. Sweeter than honey. Outside of God Himself, Scripture is to be your chief treasure, your chief joy and delight. And it really is a folly. I know it's a simple thing, but it's, it's a, we have to remind ourselves, it's folly to think we can delight in God without taking delight in His Word. Right? The, the, the clearest barometer you have on your spiritual state is your relationship to Holy Scripture. The great 4th century Biblical scholar Jerome said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. And so that a person's relationship with Christ is basically identical to their relationship with Holy Scripture. It's delusional to think, I have a really strong relationship with Jesus, but I neglect His Word repeatedly. It's a form of self-deception. So this is laid before us, the the, the Word of God in all its sweetness. Calvin says, if we can't taste the sweetness of Scripture, the problem is not in Scripture, he says, it's because we've lost our taste buds. And I think that's largely the problem we face today. So, verse 2 tells us that the, the blessed man meditates on the law day and night. I mean, can the psalmist be serious? Day and night, really? Constantly 
perpetually meditating on the Word of God? Yeah, he's serious. This doesn't mean that you have to quit your job so you can perpetually study the Bible, but it does mean at least this. It means the Bible has supreme commanding force in your life. It's the supreme book in your life. If you read more John Grisham novels than you read the books of Moses, something is wrong. I'll stop with one example. (laughs) The blessed man has one chief book. And he meditates on that book. And as many of you know, the word for meditate here is very rich. It implies that the blessed man, the blessed woman, murmurs to him or herself, speaks, chatters with a kind of amusement and delight. In other words, Scripture has seeped down into them and they're talking about it. They talk to themselves. They mutter. They chatter under their breath. You know, I remember being told the story of the the late Cornelius Van Til, who was a professor down at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And a number of his students came to visit him when he was dying in the hospital in his 90s. And he was in and out of consciousness and he wasn't lucid at all. And they said he would ramble on and on and on. And his ramblings, they said, amazingly, were holy scripture. Scripture after scripture after scripture coming out of the depth of his subconscious. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a little scared about what might come out if I'm rambling (laughs) in some quasi-lucid state in my 90s. You're like, I don't want that stuff recorded. But Van Til was one of these kinds of men. He meditated on the law of God day and night. And then when he came to die, that's what came out. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. You are what you meditate on. And so the result of this meditation, you can see it in verse 3. He'll be like a tree. (coughs) In other words, you'll have some stability. A tree planted. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 15, every tree that my Father has not planted will be plucked up. So the purpose of Scripture is to root you, to ground you, to give you an anchor, to give you stability in life. You don't want to be blown around in life. You want to be like a tree planted, the text says, by streams of living water. Rivers of pardon and peace and wisdom and encouragement. Rivers of communion with the triune God await us as we delight in His Word. This way, we yield fruit in season. You know, there's a couple things to say about this process. There's no instant holiness promised in this text. Just like you can't have instant fruit when you plant a tree. It takes years of work. 
And so what this text, Psalm 1, is saying is, look, what you need in life, the central thing you need to be blessed is long, deep engagement with the water, with the nutrient-rich soil of Holy Scripture. You cannot dabble in Scripture. You can dabble in John Grisham novels, that's fine. You can dabble in lots of things. You cannot dabble in Scripture. And so the text says, this planted tree yields fruit in its season. The idea is, it doesn't abort the process. You mature, you ripen, you grow, and then you can bring forth fruit at the right time. You know what this means? You're a priest in the house of God. You're a servant, a deacon, a minister of the gospel. And this text says, if you're this kind of person, and you're this kind of tree, then you can bring comfort and light and wisdom and encouragement and truth to others in a timely way at the right time in due season. You can bring forth fruit ripe and useful to the church of God. And the leaf here doesn't wither. There's this beautiful constancy. Remember Psalm 92 speaks of the righteous flourishing like palm trees in the courts of the Lord, bearing fruit in their old age, evergreen, full of sap. Do you want to be fruitful in the kingdom of God, even into old age? There's no retirement from this engagement with Scripture. It's this kind of meditation, this kind of cultivation of delight is the secret. So verse 3 ends with, whatever they do, prosperous. Remember, uh, Joshua was told after Moses died, here's the law of God, keep it, meditate on it for, for If you do, whatever you do will prosper. Again, this is not earthly prosperity. This is prosperity in the kingdom. This is prosperity it takes faith to see. So we have the full picture. You're called to be strenuous on two fronts. Shunning evil and engaging the law of God. Secondly, and quickly, I want to talk about the wicked. There's a sharp contrast in verse 4. But the ungodly are not so, or not so with the wicked. I mean, it often seems like the ungodly are quite happy, if we take blessed to mean happy in a sort of superficial way. They can look like they're firmly planted trees, but they are, the text continues, chaff. Notice we saw in the, in the uh, gospel lesson this morning, in Jesus' parable, that it can be really hard to differentiate the weeds from the wheat. It can look like there's no difference, even until the final judgment. But chaff isn't wheat. It's not deeply rooted in the soil. And since we can't see beneath the surfaces of life often, we get discouraged with the apparent stability, the prosperity of the ungodly. But what the psalmist does here is he opens you up. He says, look, you have to look ahead to the final judgment. 
There you can see that there is a contrast between the truly blessed man and the ungodly man. The only place to stand where you see this clearly is the final judgment. We see this repeatedly. Psalm 73, Psalm 37. The wicked with their dreams, their hopes, their plans, their aspirations. They're going to perish in an instant. And so we're called to be mindful, ever mindful of the end. You cannot live the Christian life without some pervading sense of this, that there's a coming day of judgment, and it's going to reveal who the truly planted trees are and who's just mock scenery. Verse 5 says that the, the wicked are not going to stand in the judgment. They're not going to be acquitted on that day. Nor shall sinners stand in the assembly of the righteous. This is why it's crucial to allow Scripture to judge you now, to prune you and plant you now, for you want to stand in that great day. Third point is the Lord. The Lord. Verse 6, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. This means He loves or He has regard for the righteous. He cherishes, God does, the path of the saints. And that path, as we've seen, involves shunning ungodly counsel and taking delight in His Word. Men perish because of the path they choose. A way which seems right to them, but which ends in death. And so there's two completely hostile ways of life here. You know, you can get at this difference really quickly. right? You simply ask a person, what's the supreme book in your life? And you have this Contrast, And, you know, to be honest, right, we'd have to say we often find ourselves in both worlds. Do we not? I mean, that's, that's how we find ourselves. And so the question is, how do we attain to the benediction promised in the text? You know, if I were to say nothing more than what I've said to this point, this would be a sub-Christian sermon. And a seriously sub-Christian sermon. All of Scripture, including the law, points us to Jesus Christ. And if we don't get this right, you'll just go home feeling guilty because, gee, I really need to read the Bible more. Which you probably do. (laughs) But that's not the whole point. Um, Jesus Christ alone, alone, is the blessed man of Psalm 1. When Psalm 1 says, blessed is the one, it means Jesus Christ. He's the only one of whom this psalm speaks without qualification. He's blessed. He's anointed with the oil of joy and gladness above all of his companions because he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness perfectly. He is the law of God made flesh. He's the only one who's going to be able to stand in the judgments who wouldn't be in and of himself chaff. And more importantly, Jesus is the one who's borne our judgment, the judgment due to us for heeding the counsel of the ungodly, for walking in the way of the wicked, for sitting in the seat of scoffers. 
He's the righteous one and his way alone is the way the Lord has had regard for. He's the end, the goal of the law. And that means he's the goal or the end of Psalm 1. We don't read the Psalms as the Jews do. We don't read the Psalms for a bunch of moral advice to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We read them in Jesus Christ. Now there's another danger here. And I think this one is more, touches home closer, I think. After saying what I just said, a person could think, oh, well, only Jesus can do this. And Jesus did it. And so... Maybe the psalm is not really calling me to this vigorous forsaking of ungodly counsel and this vigorous engagement with the Word of God. That would be a deadly error. All the exhortations in this text, they stand in full force. But they're done in Christ. They're done by grace. They're done understanding that only He is the man of Psalm 1. You are already blessed in the Blessed One. But this text is the path. It's the way to the full manifestation or a greater flowering of that blessedness. Let us heed the Word of God and Holy Scripture and absolutely nothing else. Amen.